0: Bond,
1: James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, Bird never make nest in bare tree.
2: Just a slight stiffness coming on.
1: Your cellos are study various. I'm just up here at Oxford brushing up on a little Danish.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole Series 3, Episode 1. It's great to be back in the saddle. That's where we're happiest. As ever, your presence in the cubbyhole is very much appreciated. If you're a returning listener or cubby, then thanks for your continued support of the podcast. If you're tuning in for the first time, then we hope you're in for a treat. And after listening to this episode, do feel free to go back to series one, where we reviewed every single cinematic Bond adventure and series two, in which we discussed our favorite parts of the franchise and spoke to some of our favorite Bond fans and alumni. While you're delving into the back catalogue, do also consider leaving us a review on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. They help us reach a wider, Bond-loving community. And talking of community, if you'd like to share your comments, reflections, or questions on all things Bond, then do feel free to get in touch as well. We're on all of the social media and via email, Roger Cubbyhole. At gmail.com. So it's on to series three this week. What do we have in store? Well, we're, we're better value than the 007 store, that's for sure. Uh, Phil doesn't need to worry on that front. Uh, like the Bond universe itself, we're going to keep our winning formula with the return of your favourite segments, as well as some creative new additions, But before all of that, we should probably introduce our hosting team. Unlike Bond in Licence to Kill, I don't work better alone. This podcast is a triumvirate of 007 expertise. But firstly, he's tall and he's dark, and like a shark, he looks for trouble. I mean, do sharks look for trouble? And Humans are the problem, in my opinion. But anyway, it's Phil. How are you, Phil? <laughs>
2: Very well, thank you, Martin. Um, I'm very happy to be back again, obviously, for our um, third series of RMCH. Really looking forward to delving into more new content. And of course, really looking forward to to um, more special guests as well. This week is actually a bit of a special one because we've hit another landmark on our Twitter pages. So we are really, really grateful because we've now passed the 900 follower mark. So thank you to everybody on Twitter that's been getting involved and in touch with the show. And obviously, you know, you send us so much positivity and so many compliments about the um, the content that we produce. So thank you to everybody that continues to get involved and obviously that continues to follow us and, and obviously to all the new followers that continue to, you know, to find the show. I'm not sure obviously when we get to a thousand, maybe we should do something special for that one. Maybe that should be a, a landmark episode maybe i don't know but um, maybe that's one for the the followers to maybe suggest something
0: perhaps if we do get to a thousand followers we could do our top 1000 bond moments it'll be a, a five day special podcast
2: what we do we do it live and just we'll we just keep going
3: that's uh that's quite a marathon i mean that's that's longer than some of our other rival bond podcasts
0: oh you went there you went there martin i'm
3: not naming names
0: Some of them are really long, though. I mean, I know we're getting a bit baggy around the edges these days, but but we're nothing compared to what some of them out there are doing. It's ridiculous.
2: I'm just saying impartial for this one.
0: I'm not saying they're not very good. They are very good, all of them, the ones I've listened to. They they just sort of... You've got to do them in a few goes, haven't you?
3: And secondly, he's suave and he's smooth and he can soothe you like vanilla. I think I think they just needed a word that rhymed with killer, didn't they, for that line? But uh, anyway, it's Adam. How are you, Adam?
0: Very good. Uh, plenty of words they could have used which aren't vanilla. They could have done something about Manila, uh, the capital city of the Philippines. Um, Polyfiller. you know, if you were going to do a bit of DIY uh, while you were singing that song. Plenty of other options. And very well, thank you. Probably worth saying, but for this series, we're not doing a straight ten in a row this time. We're going to do three uh, first up, and then we're going to sort of drip feed the rest of our episodes throughout the year in the hope that finally we will be able to catch up with No Time to Die and properly review it at some point later down the series. Uh, But just to let the fans know, we're not going to suddenly vanish off the face of the earth after three episodes. We'll be taking a few breaks, uh, but we will aim to get 10 episodes out with 10 fabulous guests before the end of the year. Um, It's a bit weird with our recording schedule, though, isn't it? Because at this point, we don't know if football has come home yet. But by the time this is released... We will know if football has come home or not. So just cut out whichever one, it, you know, that didn't happen. Uh, well, you know, they'll, they'll probably do better next time.
3: OK, so let's start the show, as we always do, with On the Scene, the segment where we analyse a specific scene from the Bond films that we feel is deserving of a little more attention. And this week, it's the turn of Live and Let Die, and specifically Mr Big's big reveal, alongside the quick hop-over to the crocodile farm so to tell us what happens he's back for series three of course it's mr alan partridge
1: one gets caught short in another dodgy new orleans soul food restaurant while useless felix lighter was off fannying about somewhere in a weird voodoo basement that's identical to the one in new york for some reason drug pimp stereotype mr big rips his own face off to show bond is really dr cananda how revealing they wang on about some incomprehensible big three harrowing giveaway scheme before Kananga demands that both Bond and Solitaire got jiggy with it. Teehee gets his grubby claws on Bond's watch, but a hook, and is about to give Bond an adult circumcision before deciding to titanium backslap him instead. Whisper carries Bond off really awkwardly, Kananga wallops Solitaire with his ring hand for giving Bond a V-card over him, and Baron Samady sets a card on fire and does a weird booming fake laugh. Over at Teehee's trespassers will be at navigator Farm. Farm gets dropped on an island at feeding time. And the highlight of the tour, no doubt. But fortunately, the crocs all line up neatly in a row for him to Takeshi's castle his way off and torch the place down. The end.
3: Thanks a lot, Alan. Great summary, as always. Uh, Live and Let Die, of course, has its detractors. But uh, in terms of the the script, of course, for this scene, we only really needed to to watch the scene over again so we could talk about it. But of course, I chose to watch the whole film again. And uh, I, I still maintain that it's an excellent film, very well written by Tom Menkowitz, some really pithy, short one-liners. But this one, a slightly different scene that we get with the main villain, uh, Mr. Big slash Kanenga. And I think it's it's a good opportunity for the main villain to uh, to show how serious he is. And we see the, uh, the domination that he has over Solitaire. I know that, Adam, you're not such a great fan of how they dealt with the Solitaire character compared to the novel. Uh, but I think certainly you see the fear she's not just a kept woman i mean it's something on a different level isn't it with the the fear that uh, that mr big kanenga strikes in her
0: uh, yeah i'd agree with that and i think jane seymour really does sell that fear very well in this scene you know you can almost feel the trembling and you know just from the look on her face you can see that sort of barely suppressed panic she's also there's something very interesting going on with the lighting of her in this scene as well if you remember when we previously seen her Ted Moore, the cinematographer, has a largely in shadow and sort of wearing these red costumes that kind of stand out against it. So she has this mystique and this aura and she's very in control. In this it's a yellow outfit and the lighting is very stark and bright on her and she's suddenly made very vulnerable by the lighting as well as by what's going on in the scene uh, but you're absolutely right there is a refreshing seriousness to this these two scenes in the film uh which sort of stand in contrast to what I, I still think is the kind of gonzo silliness of the rest of the film um but i guess because this is the moment when the big plot is revealed and because it's, it's probably the most danger bond has been in in the film and it's also the point at which the level of threat towards solitaire is at its highest uh these scenes are refreshingly played quite seriously and roger moore's performance gets that as well there's a great defiance to him even though he's trapped in this basement and there are these quite vicious you know drug lord and you know kind of associated strange villains around him he's incredibly defiant you know he doesn't flinch at all
2: yeah i must admit when he's in the uh the restaurant and obviously the uh the wall rotates he 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 does maintain his cool throughout. You know, only Roger Moore could have kind of pulled that off, I think, in terms of that sense of, you know, in this sense of extreme jeopardy, he's still completely calm and collected and uh, you know he's even able to make sort of wise cracks and uh, you know quips towards Mr Big and Teehee it's still quite, it feels quite an uncomfortable scene really because obviously you've got that difference, I think Jane Seymour was only about sort of 21, 22 when Live and Let Die was filmed and so obviously you know Kananga is a lot older than, than Solitaire you know you get this this power shift, you get this sense that you know obviously that Kananga is, is not kind of her lover almost, He's he's kind of her keeper, he's kind of her you know, he's, he's very dominating, he's very kind of intimidating, and you really get that. So, I mean, it's a brilliant performance from both actors in, in this scene, and it's it portrays you know that sense of fear and that vulnerability that um, that Solitaire has because you know she, she is now kind of reliant on Bond to keep her alive effectively. But it just builds to that. I mean, there are some slightly ridiculous moments that we've seen. I mean, the bit where Kananga reveals himself, obviously, that Mr. Big is just this sort of caricature where he obviously just rips the kind of prosthetic face off. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Mrs. Doubtfire where it's the the kind of pulling the the face off to, to swap identities. So there are... There are some uh, slightly more ridiculous moments to it. But no, I think as this scene builds, then obviously you get that tension, the fact that you don't really know... That's why it's so scary, because you don't really know where it's going, the scene where T. he has got him strapped to the chair and obviously he's got his claw around his fingers. And it's, you know, again, although there's lighthearted moments, it's, there's still a sinister element to it. You don't know how Bond or Solitaire are going to get out of it. And then obviously we get to the alligator farm, where again, Bond has to use his ingenuity and, and he has to, you know... Uses his kind of quick thinking to get out of a situation that could kill him I love your Mrs Doubtfire link there Phil <laughs>
3: they should have played it like that shouldn't they like Mr Big doesn't want Bond to find out yet and he has to put his face in a cream pie
0: <laughs> the singer in the club shouldn't have been singing the film's theme song she should have just been singing dude looks like a lady uh, just returning to that it is great work from Yafet Koto again isn't it we, we've talked before about how good he is um, but he modulates his tone really well in this scene. He's big and bellicose when he's in character as Mr. Big, and it comes back at the end in the sheer rage of that yelled, you knew that when she's on the floor. Uh, and there's a lovely physical moment just before he gets violent with her. There's a real tenderness the way that he turns Solitaire around, almost as if he, he's kind of just disappointed rather than angry, but he's only turned her around so that he can properly wallop her over the face. Um, there's a really interesting subtext in this in that he sees her virginity as his property and that relates not just to the voodoo aspects of it, but also it's a weird inverse of slavery and of course this film does take place across Louisiana, the American Deep South and of course the Caribbean and so that sort of spectre of the slave trade, if you'll forgive the pun on spectre is there and it is a very interesting play on that, the fact that we have this sort of black dignitary, this sort of black prime minister of a Caribbean island who sees this white woman as his property in a very real and literal
3: sense there yeah i think that touches on a very serious topic doesn't it which uh in a way i kind of understand adam why why you get annoyed with the uh, the other sillier elements of the film when we've got such uh, uh, such serious parts in this bit uh, but yeah i feel like in terms of the overall script i'm not sure whether we needed the two characters did we i don't understand we could have just had the president of san monique leading a double life without all the prosthetics so surely that takes up a lot of unnecessary time also i like how bond acts like quite a gentleman doesn't he in this scene i'll i'll tell Kananga when i see him oh i see you i still won't tell you
0: Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, just going back to that butterhook line in terms of the script, I believe that was an improvisation on Roger Moore's part. And they had to do it a couple of times because obviously Julius W. Harris absolutely lost it when he heard that one. I think what is really good in this scene as well is just how colourful the supporting cast is. I don't think i would really given Mankiewicz and the film credit for just how colourful the supporting goons are. You know, just things like, uh, you know, Baron Samadie, the costuming and the laugh and, you know, the way that he... Walks around the set. Jeffrey Holder obviously choreographed the film as well. It tells you everything you need to know about him. And of course, once we get to the alligator farm, T. He is the one who shows Bond around the sort of criminal base. I mean, they're there in the lab at the back processing. The heroine from the look of it and of course whisper who how long must he have been stood behind that wall just sort of waiting to carry someone off in the basement because he's a big guy and he doesn't move very quickly and, and he seems to be immediately there when the, the wall gives way and then just the way he carries roger moore off it's absolutely hilarious it, roger moore's just sort of crumpled up like this weird mannequin rag doll
2: yeah, I like this idea that kind of Whisper maybe kind of built their secret layer for them where the, obviously where the wall rotates. So maybe it was just kind of a builder that just happened to become part of Kananga's kind of go-to team. But no, I completely agree, Adam. The kind of supporting cast in this scene. I mean, one of the characters I love in live and let die is Teehee, just because of the fact that he's so large, I mean they're all larger than life in their own way, but Teehee's just kind of, you know, he's, he's never really angry with it at any time, he's, he's always sort of, he, he finds everything kind of a big joke, it's almost like he's just, he's playing it for laughs, and even when it's, you know, when they're at the alligator farm, and um, he explains how one of them bit his arm off, and most people would not want to go near another alligator again, but the fact that he's just sort of nonchalantly, you know, it's almost as if he's just saying what he had for breakfast, and it's like, you know, this major life event it's just, it's, it's just another great kind of character portrayal.
0: And it is worth sort of, you know, having a moment to just appreciate how amazing that crocodile stunt is. Because if you look at the scene again, the crocodiles open their mouths to try and take Roscananga's foot off before he's even landed on them. And that's obviously because he's already tried and failed at this stunt a couple of times. So now the alligators are expecting it. So they're almost lying in wait for him to make a mistake and go in their mouth as opposed to their back. So that is terrifying, and it feels terrifying even as you watch
2: it. The distance between bravery and stupidity in that scene—it kind of is explained with Ross uh, with Ross attempts to get across the alligators. But, you know, full credit to him for saying, you know, even attempting that, you know, I, I can't think of anyone else that would, would want to try and risk you because he was risking his life. You know, I mean, I know stunt performers do that on a day to day basis. You know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, you hear of incidents where tragically stunt performers are seriously injured or even killed on, on film sets. And although it is thankfully Ray, you know, it is one of those kind of it is an occupational hazard for them. So it's quite interesting that, you know, obviously Ross can, ang- I mean, this was back in the days kind of before health and safety, really. So, you know, they, they probably had a bit more free license to be able to take a few more risks. But even so, even now it kind of, you, you're kind of in awe at what he does, even though it's like a, a couple of seconds and then it's over. It's, it's still such an amazing stunt, even today.
3: Kanenga's uh, crocodile farm, it was a real place, wasn't it? It still, it still is, I believe. Hopefully they've got more than one single gate to, uh, to stop the crocs coming out. I always think, and the people in the lab are so shocked that it's happened as well. You, you've got one gate between the crocs and a, an important drug lab. <laughs>
0: Yeah, surely this happens all the time. And also Teehee's reaction when he runs out and the place is on fire. And he's really confused. He's like, well, what, what's happened here? And it's like, well, you left a, a secret agent at the mercy of alligators. Of course, this was going to happen. They were going to escape. He was going to burn you down. Um, also, before we get to that stunt, just the, the playing of that sequence with the music as well is, is really great. Um, if you remember the previous scene in the basement, uh, George Martin brings the music in as the tension builds. So it's as Bond is being interrogated, it's at the moment the music comes in when Kananga reveals to Solitaire that she didn't predict the serial number on the watch correctly and therefore has been found out. Again, it sort of comes in here when Bond is using his watch to bring the boat over. So you think, ah, oh, this is how Bond's going to escape. The magic watch is going to do it. And then it doesn't. And then it's absolute silence for the stunt itself which is a really brilliant sort of switch up in terms of how they use the music in these scenes.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I was going to mention the watch, actually, because I think, as I said, it's it's kind of the first time we, we really see it get used in the field. And it's kind of, it's a little bit useless for him because obviously you think, as you say, you think that the boat is going to help him. And obviously... We've kind of mentioned before how powerful are the magnets on that watch because at the end of the film, obviously, Bond manages to flick the shark bullet towards him and doesn't pull, you know, the table and everything else towards him. So it's interesting how they chose that gadget and and kind of how useless it is, really, because it it doesn't help Bond at all. You know, they may as well have not bothered.
3: It's important for the pre-title, though, Phil. Very, very crucial.
2: Mm. Such a thing.
3: Magnetism, okay so next up we have the main feature of our episode the guest interview and a very special guest for this week's episode who did we have in the cubbyhole adam
0: This was very exciting because this week, at long last, three series in, we have our first female voice on the show. Uh, We uh, paid host to Martine Beswick, uh, one of the earliest Bond girls of them all, played uh, Zora the Gypsy Fighter in From Rush With Love and then returned in the more prominent role as Paula in Thunderball. Uh, And so we talked to her last week from her home in Wandsworth. Uh, So without any further ado, let's hand over to the quite incredible uh, Martine Beswick welcome to the show, Martine. Uh, to start things off, um, can you just tell us a little bit about where you were in your sort of career prior to your first brush with with the Bond series?
4: I was doing little bits on telly and basically I was a model and um, I was doing a lot of modelling and then every now and again, you know, they'd sort of say, well, you know, there is this you know, the saint and they need models to kind of hang out and do things. So, I mean, it kind of started like that, little bits and pieces. And um, But basically a model. I was a model.
3: You also could have appeared in the Bond franchise a little earlier. I believe you auditioned for Dr. No, was it? Could you tell us what was that process
4: like? This story has been told many times. But a, a small film was taken of me in Jamaica when I was living there. And by this lovely, lovely man who said he was a producer and wanted to, you know, he was looking for a little star. Actually, he was really lovely. He was a sweetheart. No, none of that nonsense, you know, none of that. Um, And he took this, this little film of me sort of prancing about in a yellow polka dot bikini and just leaping about and being sort of like my mad self. And he showed, he took it around all over, Europe and also America. But I got a letter from a agent, not an agent, um, a, like a studio, that if I was ever in London, please give them a call. So when I came back in 61, I had my little letter and I called them up and they said, "Ah oh, yes, please come in." So I went in and literally I can remember this huge table with all these suits sitting around. And I was kind of like, ooh, what is this? Hello. And they're all sort of like talking behind their hands. And they said, you know, Bond. And just, a Bond." So they decided to set me up to go for an interview with Terence Young for this Bond film. And I had no, I mean, here I was. I mean, Jamaican, never heard of Bond, never read a book, ne- no, 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 had not a clue. So I went there and I met Terence. And there was something about Terence, meeting Terence, that was absolutely, I mean, it was like twinkle, twinkle. And he looked at me and he said, you're too young and you don't have any experience. Go and get some experience because I have an idea for you. And that's how it all happened.
0: And as you mentioned, Terence Young, um, Sean Connery's always talked a lot about, um, you know, hugely crediting him for setting the style and the tone of the films. Um, How did you find him when you you came to work with him as, um, as your director? And what do you think it was that made him such a good fit for making those early films?
4: He was Bond. He was probably one of the most elegant gentlemen I have ever known in my life. And we were firm friends all the way through I mean we lost each other for a while and then we caught up again but there was always this wonderful friendship because there was that twinkle so he was he was he was very special he was a very special person in my life
3: from Russia I'd love you of course play one of the the gypsies in the fight mm-hmm. magnificent choreography we always think for uh, for that scene and the, the music in the background really worked well what kind of preparation did you have to do for that one
4: We went through three weeks of literally rehearsing the whole thing. All the moves, all the fights, because we had to do it. There was no other people that were going to be there. And I thought it was actually a really terrific fight, because also he wanted, what Terence wanted, was to be able to come in with a handheld camera and really go in really close. We had to rehearse. It was choreographed. Choreographed? That's good. Choreographed?
0: I think choreographer is better. I think you've made a. I think you've made an improvement on uh, the English language there. I much prefer that. I was, <laughs> and was and was and learning that choreography and learning the fight was. Was it a particular challenge? Did you need quite a, a good level of, of fitness to do it? Was it was it tiring at any point?
4: Well, the thing was that I was. I mean, I was a mad dancer. I mean, I was actually well known in all the clubs. I would get on the floor and dance all bloody night. So I was pretty you know I was pretty fit yeah, I didn't go to a gym I danced all night <laughs> that's,
3: that, the best, that's the, best that's the same as me but I don't do the dancing either. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you didn't have such a great relationship with uh, your co-star Miss Israel Eliza Gurr what was your what was the dynamic there
4: well we got on because I mean I that's that's sort of who I am and I'm, I'm working with her and so we kind of and it was actually you know but the problem with her is that she had, she was, she told fibs. Uh, she kept saying that she was, you know, this very nice girl who hadn't had any experience. Meanwhile, I was like this wild child who had been leaping about in the 60s with whoever and wherever. And we. I found out later that she was married. And she said that she'd never been with a man. And I thought, what? So, unfortunately... That kind of put a you know a little nail in her coffin because I'm I'm I like honesty. And she was like one of the most dishonest people I've ever met. Fair enough. When
0: it when it came to filming that fight sequence, sort of you know, getting there on the day, um, how long did it take to get it in the can? And how many times did you have to perform it? Did anything go wrong at any time?
4: You no, know, it was a big scene and it was on the back, it was supposed to go to Turkey. And I was so excited because one of the things about about actors there was always the question oh where is it shooting <laughs> because we we were ready to go wherever but they decided to shoot it on the backlog very disappointing but it was a night shoot and I think it was about I think it's about two weeks it was fun to do
0: and um, and did you sort of stay for the filming when it um, when it kind of then erupted into the the big gunfight afterwards? Like um, were you were you sort of around? Did you see much of that? Was that kind of an exciting part of it? To witness? yeah,
4: because yes, yeah, because I mean the thing is that there was like the little bit at the end where you know Bond gets to have the two women, which is absolutely. I mean, I did not agree with that at all, but you know, license was taken. Um, so yeah, we were because because they, we didn't shoot it. Or just the fight. Then we had something else. I mean, it was all sort of like you know. So we were around for the whole for the whole shoot.
3: Okay, very nice. So I guess we could uh, we could move on to the uh, the next uh, film that you're involved in. Of course, Thunderball. Apart from Sean himself, Bond returned as an actor, but you were also the first actor to return in a role. How did that come about? Your your second appearance.
4: That was Terence again because it was an island girl. She had to be an island girl. And they kept coming up with all these, you know, all these English actresses. And he said, "Don't be ridiculous. She's Jamaican." And he literally laid down the law. He fought for me. I loved him for it. And he and he won because there I was, you know, I was the island girl. So when we did do the filming, we had so much fun. We worked really hard, but we had so much fun.
0: Yeah, we were going to ask a little bit more about that because um, obviously in contrast to From Rush With Love, um, Thunderball, your scenes definitely were not shot on a a back lot in uh, in Britain. Um, What was that location like? What kind of things, you know, as far as you can say, did you get up to sort of after hours? And obviously being from Jamaica originally, like, did that give you kind of an advantage with sort of, I guess, knowing your way around um, the Caribbean, sort of, you know, working in those conditions? No.
4: I'd never been to Nassau before, but I'd been to beaches. I you know. I mean, yes, of course. I mean, I, I was from an island, but there was such a joy. I mean, and it was Terence who set it up, and his relationship with Sean was key. I mean, it was Harry and Harry and Cubby were in one kind of tribe. We sort of saw them sometimes. But it was Terrence and his wife, Sean and his wife at the time, who I I was mad for. Absolutely. She was so fantastic. So we had that. And then we had also um, Kevin McClory with his wife. So there was like this group. And we would have these evenings where we would all gather and eat fantastic food. I mean, and also remember, Thunderball was like the zenith of Bond at that point I mean it was huge huge every magazine every tv thing every paper they were all there they all came there I mean it was just madness and it sort of it actually kind of threw Sean because they were it was sort of like having you know them constant on him
0: I was going to ask you a little bit more about that because because, yeah, you're right, it was the Zenith and we all know about, you know, how hard it was later in Japan for You Only Live Twice for him. But, yeah, was it really noticeable, that difference between the atmosphere around from Rush With Love and then Thunderball? And and did it affect you all working or was it more just sort of, you know, away from the set that you sort of felt it was intruding a little?
4: well it was intruding but the thing is that we still continued i mean luckily i mean because we had like this tribe this friendship between us all and really liked each other so we did even although all of that was going on he was he literally he was working really hard but it was it did it, he he did you know suddenly he's on the beach and he's working and there are all these kids that have come down from florida And he, I mean, he was not a happy camper. Don't get in my way, basically, because he's working. But we still have fun.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it still looks like he's having fun on the screen, certainly compared to maybe later films. Yeah.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, his lines in that film were just brilliant.
3: And again, we also wanted to ask a little bit about the other Bond women. Of course, they've become very prominent in Thunderball. How did you get along with uh, Claudine and Luciana?
4: Girlfriends, sisters. I mean, really. I mean, Claudine and I became really, really, really close. And then we disappeared. I mean, we sort of, after the film, we didn't see each other again. But Molly, who I absolutely, I mean, Molly and I were gigglers. Every time we met, we were just kind of, you know, naughty schoolgirls, basically. And Luciana, I still see when I, I mean, the, anytime I go there, if she comes to London, I have to see her. If I go to LA, I have to see her. So she's still a dear friend. And actually, you know, talking about Bond girls, not just the Thunderball girls, a lot of times we all meet from all the different films. And when we do, there is such a. A real joy and a love because we've all had this thing. This experience is something that all of us have shared. There was a real love and respect and connection with everyone when we see each other. When we see each other, it's just fabulous.
3: Was it a celebrity Bond Girls master chef a few years ago?
4: That was hilarious. There were 12 of us. They, they picked us up and took us to um, the Savoy. Where we were served champagne and, and little goodies. And of course, and naturally, because we were meeting, we were having, we were going, oh, this is such fabulous. Oh, darling. Hello, my sweet. And it was a lot of that going on. And then we were taken into this room where we all sat around, and there was Greg at the, at the top of the table, and John Tarode was in the kitchen with all the, the, the little chefs. And it was terribly sweet. It was really, really lovely. And of course, the cameras were all there asking us questions. And, you know, how was that? And did you like that food? And I mean, it was actually quite funny. Because there is something about the Bond girls that have a real sense of humor. It usually pops out, especially when we're together. We sort of encourage each other. So it was absolutely Hilarious (laughs) Hilarious <laughs> and delicious.
0: I'd, I'd imagine so. It certainly sounds like, as you say, a load of naughty schoolgirls let loose in, uh, in the Savoy from the sound. Exactly.
4: Of it. Exactly. <laughs> there's, there's a naughtiness that we all have. And I think that's partly why we, we were all picked to be Bond girls.
0: I was going to say, because it, it always shines through in, in the performances, in the films as well, from all of you, like that charisma and that sparkle and that sense of playfulness and fun, like you're big characters. And, and that's why you, you make those films so amazing. Um, and in terms of big characters, obviously, you're one of the few actors who've, uh, who've set foot in Q's workshop. Uh, were those scenes fun to film? Uh, and, and what were your sort of memories, not just of Desmond Llewellyn, but also of El Cameron, uh, who's a great actor who, um, who um... shared those scenes with you as well?
4: I lo- Earl was adorable. You know, over the years we had we went to conventions together. He was just lovely and his wife was so lovely. I mean, really, I mean, I can't think of anyone of all the people who I worked with. I can't really think of even Elisa Gurr. I mean, everyone, there was always something there that was unique.
0: So, so just staying with Paula briefly, and she's the first of what would turn out to be quite a fruitful recurring character type in the series, namely the sort of female intelligence worker. Um, but her death does come as, as quite a shock because it happens relatively early, sort of after we've, we've met her. Um, was it always the plan for it to be that shocking and to, to come out of the blue like that? Or were there sort of more scenes on the cutting room floor which you sort of, I don't know, wish we should have stayed in? Like what, what was the sort of um, the plan there as far as you knew?
4: Well, we could have had a little bit more. There could have been a bit more. I mean, I also know that at that time, had I done it a little while later, I would probably have been a better actress. But I mean, I was still pretty green. I, yeah, I had, you know, I had chutzpah and I was like wild. And so I kind of gave it that, you know, but if it had been a bit later, I would probably have been a better actress.
3: We've mentioned a bit about Sean already, but do you have any particular memories of uh, working with Sean on Thunderball that, uh, that stand out?
4: Well, he was my mischief. I mean, I'd be doing a scene and he'd be maybe standing behind the camera, giving me my eye thing and he'd be making faces. And of course, there's, there's, there's Terrence going, children, stop that. Stop that now. We're working. And I can't I don't know how to explain it. All I can tell you is, a, you know, nod, nod, wink, wink
0: that's it and say no more as uh monty python says yeah
4: exactly exactly
0: <laughs> um i just wanted to ask marty there's been a bit of a shift in recent times over the terminology uh, used to describe um, you know the sort of women of bond i mean monica bellucci yeah. when she did spectre was very adamant you know i'm a bond woman as opposed to a bond girl but then not but you know people like Britt eklund have said no no i'm a bond girl and i'm very proud that i was a bond girl uh where do you sort of stand on that do you think it's just easy either way do you prefer one or the other
4: Absolutely, Bond girl. I mean, do get a grip, guys, Bond woman. It doesn't sound right. it? I mean, I'm sorry. No. As far as I'm concerned, Bond girl, that's it. Bond girls are forever. As Mariam Diabo, I mean, she did a fantastic book and also documentary. She's just, and she's lovely. I mean, they are really all lovely. Now, this Bond woman thing, get a grip.
3: Well, I was going to say it someone needed to tell Adam because he always tells us to say Bond woman, but
2: uh... I, I
0: have been a bit, yeah, me. <laughs> sorry, I have been a bit mean on them about that. But I think now that I've got your blessing, I'll, yeah, we'll we'll relax that. We'll go Bond girl and proudly. Bond
4: girl. <laughs> I, mean, really, I, I, mean, I will. I
0: will consider myself schooled, Martin.
4: <laughs> there was another thing about Bond girls being used, and and my whole thing is, I'm sorry, who's using who? You know, I mean, we knew what was what we were going into. We knew exactly what we were going into. And we were chosen because we were unique, because we were strong. So, I mean, I don't understand this sort of this little weak little girl image that that somebody's putting. Are you mad? So for me, it's we are we are a force and we've always been a force. And each one is completely unique. I mean, Shirley Eaton, don't be ridiculous. Poor little Bond girl. No, 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 no.
3: <laughs> I'm glad we set the record straight there. So uh, what are your impressions of how the series has gone? I mean, imagine that uh, Connery and the the older 60s Bonds are perhaps your favourites. But what, what do you think has improved or maybe got worse over the years?
4: Well, I must say that it was a bit difficult for me to get, you know, to to really get into Daniel Craig because it was all too fucking serious. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be swearing. Naughty, naughty. Um, It was too serious. It was hard edged and it was like a different thing. And I missed the one liners that were really funny. But I have to say, Skyfall was a terrific film and turned my head a bit. Sean, I'm sorry, was the one. Certainly not. Oh,
0: God. Did you find Timothy Dalton too serious? I was just going to sort of wonder. Yeah, Ah,
4: he's the he's the worst because he looked first of all, he was not happy to be doing it. He's a Shakespearean actor. I mean, I'd already seen him in Los Angeles when he came out to do the Mae West film. That was so humiliating for him. Poor thing, you know, and from that, I mean, really, it was like, Do what you will with it. But he looked like he didn't want to be there. He wore his clothes like a sack. He didn't look like he was even having fun with the ladies. It looked like he was being punished. (laughs) Interestingly, though, I met him many years later, and he was a happy person. He was having a ball, absolute ball, working. He was playing Rhett Butler.
0: Gone with
4: the wind was it then? Gone
0: with the wind, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't even know there was a TV one of that.
4: Oh my god, he was having a ball. So that it was really nice to see that he'd kind of, you know, burst himself basically. Pierce Pierce Brosnan was my next favorite. Actually, I really liked him because he had that, you know, he had that little naughty side. I that's what I liked. I mean, even yeah. Roger had it too you know he was adorable he was adorable
0: great um what are your kind of thoughts looking back on the two films you did sort of what impact would you say they had on your life and career and just in terms of bond in general what for you is is the enduring secret of of why they're still so beloved and why they're still so successful
4: it is just amazingly unique um, situation i mean you know the only other one The only other sort of film like that is um, the Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, which actually, I mean, the last one was like, wow, there was some serious stuff in that. What is interesting is that a lot of the things, all that stuff that was literally created for the Bond films of futuristic thing, this is happening today. So it's, I mean, it's big. It's big, it's bold, it's unique, and I can hardly wait to see the next one.
3: So that was Martine Beswick. What an incredible woman she was to talk to. Just such a great energy, a great zest for life. And amazing, really, that we could uh, we could talk to someone who was in the second Bond film, *In From Russia with Love*. Her answer, particularly on the issue of Bond girls versus Bond women.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I was completely schooled on that one. And and I will just now say to both of you, I won't be as militant as I was in the past about enforcing the Bond women thing. I think let's just do it on a case by case basis. You know, if Monica Bellucci ever comes on, obviously, we will have to refer to her as a Bond woman. But beyond that, let's just a Bond girl has said they love the term Bond girls. They're not phased by it. They love being part of that very exclusive club. So let's embrace that and call Bond girls as Bond girls like to be called. Namely, Bond Girls.
3: And talking of Bond Girls, our next segment, we're going to take a look at the 007 Best. And for this week's episode, it's the 007 Best, Femme Fatales. Quite interesting characters we've got to uh, explore for, uh, for this segment. So we'll start. Yeah.
2: Number seven. So in at number seven, we have Helga Brandt of You Only Live Twice fame, of course. Quite a ruthless character in many respects. You know, obviously Bond is kind of taken by her beauty and her assertive ruthlessness. She does meet quite an unfortunate end at the hands of Blofeld. Obviously, she fails in her mission to kill Bond and um, Blofeld, obviously, officer in the Piranha Tank in, in a rather brutal fashion. But Helga Brandt, nonetheless, is kind of one of those well-remembered femme fatales of the, of the franchise,
0: yeah, she's kind of definitive proof that Spectre, um, whatever it may be, is not sexist, is it? The fact that she has a sort of Spectre number, I think she's number 11, isn't she? Uh, when Mr. Asato doesn't, he's just Asato. He's not even qualified yet. He's not passed the entrance exam. He's just a sort of associate member. Uh, and of course, being, I think, off more violently at that point than any Spectre um, agent before her, uh, probably the most violent Spectre agent death of all, really, being fed to the piranhas. Like, that. that's quite some way to go.
2: Yeah, it's quite an inventive approach. I think this is the first real, you know, outside-of-the-box death that we see in the franchise. I mean, before it's been, so, you know, you either get shot or you just get stabbed with a poisoned toe if it's Rosa Klebb's victims.
3: Yeah, and her failed attempt at killing Bond, I mean, she deserves her place in the, the Spectre ranks, doesn't she? She's uh, up there with the main villains in her dreadful attempts to actually kill him.
0: It's also such a confined space, because it's a light aircraft, that the whole scene kind of comes off as a bit funny, doesn't it? Right, I'll just have to leave you now. Then just sort of very clumsily turns around because there's not very much room to move in. I wonder if actually she wasn't going to kill him at all, but then Bond ruined her dress with that scalpel. And then from then on in, she was just like, right, I'm going to have you, mate. This this cost me like loads and loads of money. This is like designer. And you have just slashed it to pieces with that scalpel. It was my scalpel as well. Number six.
3: And in at number six, we have Andrea Anders from The Man With The Golden Gun one of two excellent performances from Maud Adams in the Bond series. Really great character, starts, of course, on the island with uh, with Scaramanga and by the end is helping Bond and meets a very tragic, and as many of these femme fatales do. Uh, but yeah, she's got a real charm about her, hasn't she? I think, um, arguably, I'm not sure which one I prefer, actually, Andrea Enders
2: or, or Octopussy, but I think
3: for this particular femme fatale list, I thought that uh, Enders maybe just edges it.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Martin. I think Maud Adams. This is probably her best performance of the two, simply because of the fact that um, you know, again, she portrays that vulnerability—the fact that she isn't in control of her own destiny because she's kind of reliant on Scaramanga, and Scaramanga is again kind of her keeper. And as you said, it, that kind of makes it even more brutal when we see the the death scene in the um, in the the judo ring. Which again, it just kind of adds more payoff to that just because of the fact that, you know, we've kind of grown to like this character and we've grown to respect them as well. And it just it, it, it feels on a par with kind of a Majesty's in terms of that level of brutality, that sense of, you know, that sense of loss and that sense of waste almost.
0: Well, I wouldn't go quite that far, but it is certainly a great performance.
2: Um, she, she's, But the really interesting thing
0: about her as a femme fatale is, is A, that she isn't a femme fatale, really. She's sort of working for the villain that she wants to escape from him. But also it's the fact that she's not completely powerless. This whole film kind of is spurred into action because she sends 007 the bullet, because she is actively orchestrating her escape from Scaramanga by trying to get Bond to eliminate him for her. Um, I'm not sure about the sort of staff at the Peninsula Hotel, though. I mean, they kind of let Bond straight into the room and then they don't do absolutely anything when, you know, the signs of him nearly breaking her arm sort of start emanating from it. I'm not sure what it says about that hotel staff.
3: Well, if you recall, when we went in there, Adam, it was quite impossible for getting even into the elevator. We couldn't get up there, could we, after the the lovely afternoon tea?
0: Yeah, no, not at all. Maybe they they sort of tightened their game up after this film. They sort of realised, oh, hang on, maybe we shouldn't just let random people into strangers' rooms because they just said, oh, it'll be a surprise. Number five. And in at number five, it's Irma Bunt from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So, of course, not the traditional femme fatale, but much more of a sort of mother hen, I guess, to a whole troop of femme fatales over at Piz Gloria. Brilliantly played by Ilsa Steppard. I think her eyes are probably the most menacing and mesmerising in the whole series. You know, that sequence when Bond thinks he's got another conquest, whips the bed covers off, and it's just her staring at him. It's one of the big shock moments in the film. It really does take you aback. I didn't know this about her, that she died four days after the release of Honor Her Majesty's Secret Service, this actress, and, and was therefore written out of Diamonds Are Forever, you know, as a tribute to her. So they didn't have to recast, which I, I must confess, I didn't know before. Um, and I guess makes all the more powerful and prominent her performance in this film.
2: Yeah, I, I think Irma Bunt as a character is one of the, you know, the very best. As you said, she's not really necessarily a femme fatale in the traditional sense, but... She still has her own kind of ruthlessness. It's it's that sense that she actually holds her own level of control and level of power beneath Blofeld. So she is kind of his right-hand woman almost. Yeah, I mean, I don't doubt how important she
3: is as a character. I think arguably even with James Bond as a character himself, she is the most influential on his life, I suppose, killing his bride on on the wedding day. Uh, But I I take issue with the... uh, I know you said it's not a conventional femme fatale, but I didn't include a Bunt on my list because I, I checked the definition of a femme fatale, mysterious, beautiful, and seductive. I'd probably say no, no, and no on those three counts and also a woman whose charms ensnare her lovers. I'm not sure whether she does that, really, in the film. Maybe maybe you guys have got some extra information about her relationship with Blofeld.
0: You know, it's interesting you say that, because in the novels, uh, she is much more explicitly go- uh, Blofeld's girlfriend. Um, I, I would get that she is mysterious. We don't know much about her, apart from the genealogical meaning of her surname. Maybe that's just the reason that she ends up killing Bond's wife and, and just hates him so much. It's not that he foils the plot. It's the fact that he's just insulted her nickname, calling her the bangy part of a sale.
2: OK, so in at number four, we have Electra King, the first kind of standout Bond villain played by a woman um, of course from the world is not enough in 1999 again a brilliant performance from sophie marceau she obviously uses her kind of you know her body and her beauty to kind of not as a confused bomb but to basically t- kind of buy into her scheme and bond kind of sees her as the vulnerable party in this film where she's actually pulling the strings and obviously she uh she then Tricks M as well, so this sense that there's a lot of double crossing going on, and, and obviously again, Sophie Marceau plays it so brilliantly.
3: Uh, yeah, I think she's one of the best femme fatales easily in the in the Bond franchise. Of course, when the film came out, we would have been what 10, 11 years old, and so this was probably one of the first films that I had on VHS as a young teenager. Um, so it made quite an impression in my formative years. Um, this character, quite, how do I? What's the word?
0: Did you have a soft spot for Sophie Marceau, Martin? Yeah,
3: let's, let's just say that, yeah. <laughs> the fact that she is the main character also, or the main villain, really makes the whole performance even more powerful, I think.
0: Yeah, totally. I've talked a little bit before how I think Brosnan's a little too Roger Moore in this, but I think there are shades of Connery, perhaps even of Lazenby, that come back into it in those scenes between Brosnan and Marceau. Bond's genuinely compromised by sort of falling in love with, but then suspecting her before she is unveiled, as the chief nemesis, she makes his error of judgment particularly awkward and brutal and self-reflexive. And then when you finally get to the line where he has to kill her, he does very coldly shoot her in the manner of Connery and Professor Dent, and with that line I'll never miss.
3: Number three. And making it into the top three, at number three is Mayday from A View to a Kill. A very unique character, a very unique actress, uh, she had to be on this list, really, didn't she? In terms of uh, Femme Fatale, is a dominating character, and uh, there is no one quite as dominating as Grace Jones, um, sex toys and all, with uh, with Sir Roger. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, complex relationship she has with the main villain as well, Max Zorin. She's got uh, a bit of everything, hasn't she? In uh, in this film, one of the uh, the highlights of uh, an otherwise underwhelming uh, Roger Holly.
2: Yeah, I was going to say we've we've kind of never seen anything before in terms of what Grace Jones brought to the role as Mayday. And I don't think we'll ever see anything again that can ever really compare to it. It's it's kind of of its own unique ilk really. I mean, Grace Jones is, is probably one of the standout performers in this film, simply because of the fact that she's not really, I've said it before, she's not really acting. She's not really playing a character. She is just Grace Jones. The ridiculousness of of some of the deaths as well, just kind of say, oh, I mean, you look at Professor uh, Inspector Aubergine in the Eiffel Tower, and the fact that it's a, a poison butterfly that she kind of hurls at him. The sense of how accurate you'd need to be with quite a cumbersome gadget. I mean, if you if you got that wrong, you just hit a random um, diner in the restaurant and just started killing people by accident. You're, gonna, you're not going to last very long.
3: You started your own Bond-Cludo there, till so You accidentally were going to say Professor Aubergine <laughs> with the poison butterfly in the dining room.
0: Who's the army guy in uh, Olaf. Does that make Olof Colonel Mustard? Um, I actually think the way she does work as a counterpoint to Zorin is, is that like the best hench people, like uh, Red, Grant and Jaws, it's a silent menace that she carries with her. She doesn't have very much dialogue throughout the film until her final scenes with Bond when she's turned into a, a good guy. Uh, but even then, she's mostly just shouting at him. get get away damn it and of course you know just the power she exerts in the love scene with bond the fact that she just completely strips nude and has this sort of very defiant bracing walk over to the bed and then just completely mounts him like she wouldn't have just done that because it's roger moore and he's like 75 at this point she'd have done that to any bond at any time she'd still do that to daniel craig
3: a surprise no time to die cameo perhaps
0: (laughs) oh i'd be very much in favor of that number two and just missing out on the top spot at number two it's fiona volpe from thunderball as played by luciana paluzzi uh, this is the first true fan fatale of the series actually and i think still one of the best ones just a complete pure unrepentant evil isn't she she's not you know she doesn't suddenly turn on um her masters as tatiana does in from Russia with love or pussy galore in um, you know in goldfinger Uh, But she's the boss of everyone here. She's kind of running the show, certainly at the health farm. She's giving the orders to Count Lippy and to Angelo. And later on, she's the one telling Largo exactly how and when Bond is to be killed in order to be taken out of things. So she's kind of the boss of this. Or if she isn't the boss, she certainly thinks she's the boss.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and also she kind of sets the blueprint for femme fatales to come. You know, we've, we've spoken about a lot of the different character traits and a lot of the different styles of acting that are a lot of the femme fatales would use in later films. And they kind of owe a lot to Fiona Volpe and, and that style of, of ruthless kind of violence in, in terms of how she plays it. Because she is she's very intimidating, but in a very kind of quiet way because she's not really physically imposing. She doesn't really, you know, she's not kind of lording over Bond. Like, yeah, you, you, know, you can kind of imagine Grace Jones is quite physically imposing as a person because she's quite tall and quite muscular in, in her physique in The View to the Kill. Whereas Fiona Volpe is very much more, you know, she's quite petite. You wouldn't really think of her as a traditional femme fatale, but she is when she needs to be. She is completely ruthless, so she plays that completely to her advantage.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great point, Phil. I think sets the sets the blueprint. If I can talk, sets the blueprint in the blue dress. Very iconic, I feel, as a, as a character. Very powerful woman. Certainly agree with you. She's not physically intimidating, but she does. You do get the sense that Bond is in some danger uh, when she's on the screen. Uh, and that's really a testament to her excellent acting abilities, uh, but testament to the character itself as well that uh, she's an intelligent person who's going to influence the plot in uh, important ways.
0: Yeah, and she plays the coy victim incredibly well as uh, as well, doesn't she? Like when we first meet her at Shrublands, we don't know she's going to turn out to not just be, um, you know, Angelo's bed companion. She's actually running the show. She tricks Paula, Martine Beswick, of course, earlier in the film. And also, I guess, with Bond, you know, she, she sort of... There's something of her, again, exerting physical control through the sexuality of her body that she's able to to get nude out of the bath, sort of reveal herself under the, um, the towel, Uh, But also the speeding in the car scene when um, he's escaped the disco Volante for the first time and she drives him back to the hotel. She's the one in control of that car. She's going at speeds that even Bond is finding uncomfortable. So she's not afraid of just absolutely dominating these male characters and being the one who can put herself further on the edge than all of them.
2: Number one. Okay, and in at number one, our top fem. Fatal, you may have already guessed from our list, but just in case you were still wondering, it is, of course, Xenia top from Pierce Brosnan's debut as Bond in Goldeneye really kind of one of the most memorable characters in the entire franchise again brilliantly played by Famke Janssen is a kind of larger than life character that's um you know very much quite bombastic and very can kind of match bond for not just for physical strength but also for intellectual knowledge and uh, and kind of his own wit she has that ruthless nature, obviously, off in the uh, uh, Chuck Farrell, the Canadian military commander. And, you know, and obviously the death scenes at Seven I as well, where she obviously machine guns everyone. You know, she is one of just those great kind of memorable characters, not just from the bomb films, but kind of from cinema, really. And, and again, I think we owe a lot of credit to Famke Janssen for her kind of very original portrayal of that character.
3: Canadian Chuck Farrell you're never going to forget that name are you Phil after losing one of the quizzes <laughs> that's, that's embedded in your brain now uh, but yeah then you're on, on a top on a top of the list and uh, obviously incredible character incredible performance by Femke Jensen yeah I think it just GoldenEye is uh, almost I mean arguably you could say it's almost a perfect Bond film and she is one of the other perfect femme fatale characters
0: Yeah, and kind of before we even get to that that scene with Farrell, just when Bond first properly meets her, I guess, in the casino after the the kind of car chase, she dominates the table in the same way that we saw Sylvia Trench do in uh, Doctor No, uh, but in a very different way, which kind of hints at her character from the off. She's not in this sort of red dress, but actually it's this very masculine sort of leather kind of gown isn't it but with her bust still very prominent so there's kind of her femininity and her sexual energy but there's also that sense of, of mass of almost masculine power and that comes from the fact that she's got a very phallic cigar on the go as well.
2: Yeah I was gonna say we kind of get a mention of that when she's in the train with Alec Trevelyan and also she's in this sort of enormous kind of black coat that's quite sinister and quite heavy and you know, again, you get those masculine overtones, and then she's obviously got the, the huge cigar, but also she's got a hair and a nice top bun and things like that. So there's this kind of mix of, I guess, is that sort of the power struggle as well between the sexes, obviously, the sense that, you know, she's in a very male dominated world and she has to sort of assert her dominance on them in, in the way that she knows how. I mean, the Admiral
0: Farrell scene is going back to that for a second. It's a bit of a game changer for the series, isn't it? You know, we've talked about Goldeneye, Nicholas Sujic last series called Talked About. This is where Bond moves from being classic action movies to modern action films and kind of license to kill predicts it a bit on the violence front. But certainly on terms of how Bond represents sex, this is by far the most graphic and noisy sex scene we've had in the film so far.
3: Yeah, and it's uh, interesting the kind of disturbing nature as well. The fact that I think we mentioned previously in uh, our Golden review that she takes some kind of sexual gratification, doesn't she, when she's using the machine gun and killing everyone towards the end? So uh, yeah, I think just uh, really disturb. It's interesting that the Golden I mean, I could watch it over and over again. Um, but most of the time, if you do have a film that has such a disturbing character, you wouldn't <laughs> you wouldn't want to keep watching it. But there's just something something about the character, isn't there?
2: And it's so disturbing that when we
0: later get to that very risque bathhouse fight between her and Bond, which could fall foul of any number of sort of censorship rules on violence towards women, we still sort of don't care because we know how horrible this character is and how well she can sort of stick up for herself. I mean, a guy does try and interrupt them, and he's just knocked out with that bucket, isn't he? He's just sent flying. No, no, no.
1: No
4: more foreplay.
3: So, next up, we have the James Bond Film Club. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Let's go straight over to Adam. What did we have for this week?
0: Thank you very much, Martin. This week, for this little run of three episodes, we're going to look at the Indiana Jones trilogy. Yes, I said trilogy. There are only three of them, there is no fourth Indiana Jones film uh we're doing this for a very specific reason first there is a very major bond link but also because phil has never seen these before so we will be crossing to him shortly but just by way of introduction we'll be starting with raiders of the lost ark directed by steven spielberg in 1981 Written by Lawrence Kasdan from a story idea by George Lucas, and of course, starring Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, Denham Elliott, Paul Freeman, Ronald Lacey, and General Pushkin himself, John Reese Davies. Now, the bond link here is that Steven Spielberg really wanted to direct a Bond film in the late 70s, early 80s. He'd have been in contention probably for Moonraker, possibly also for Fior Eyes only. And having lost the gig, His choice to direct Indiana Jones was very much him deciding, I will treat this, therefore, as my version of a Bond film. Uh, So very, very quick plot recap, 1936, Indiana Jones is the whip cracking charismatic, world-weary adventurer archaeologist who is sent by the US government to go to Egypt to investigate a Nazi-backed hunt for the Lost Ark, the biblical artifact which, if any army carries it, apparently makes them invincible. His job is to find out if it's real, and if it is real, to find it first. And so we cue a series of hair-raising adventures involving huge boulders, golden monkey idols, Uh, And all manner of other things uh, in which he uh, teams up with uh, the bellicose excavator Salah, our guy John Rhys-Davies, and also his erstwhile and very spiky former love interest Marion Ravenwood. Uh, And of course, he's up against not only the Nazis, uh, but Belloc, his French rival as well. Now, it's an interesting film for Spielberg this because George Lucas is very much riding high on the back of Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back, but it's actually a bit make or break for Spielberg, because Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, obviously huge, huge successes made in one of the US's most revered directors. But his next film after that, 1941, was a big budget war comedy and it absolutely bombed. And in the context of other films around this time from big name directors, which were hugely, hugely costly, um, you know, studio ruining kind of, you know, monsters, as it were. Things like Heaven's Gate and Apocalypse Now. If this hadn't worked, it could have been the end of Spielberg. Obviously, it wasn't. And it's pretty much the greatest non-Bond action adventure film of all time. But here's the big moment. Phil, you went away. You saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. What did you reckon?
2: I did. I sort of closed myself away in a, in a little room and, uh, and watched the film to myself and you know, I've, I've finally popped my uh, Indiana Jones cherry, as it were. And yet, you know, I really didn't. It's it's one of those things. I don't even know why I never got around to seeing it, because obviously it's one of those type of films where, again, as you said, you know, Spielberg was a great fan of the bomb films. And Adam, as you have mentioned, he really wanted to direct one. And you get that sense, although it obviously it's not a spy thriller, you do get that sense of, you know, there are those hallmarks of what a great bomb film should be. I will say the end scene where all the Nazis' faces melt. You know, particularly the scene where the uh, I can't remember his name, but the the one that's really torturous and and has his hand burnt in the opening scene where he basically melts. That hasn't aged particularly well, but you know, we'll we'll probably you know gloss over that one a little bit. But for the rest of the film, you know, the the, the cinematography and the the way that it's put together, it does feel very rich and it feels very much you know considering this is the same year as as for your eyes only, it feels very very similar to that level of quality it feels like it's a, as as you would expect with Spielberg and George Lucas it's a very very high standard it made me really want to look forward to the next two films because obviously it's it kind of it sets the bar really high for what Spielberg wants to achieve or I almost think with the next two films as well and I will be honest I've, although I, I really respect Spielberg as a director I've I don't always enjoy all of his films you know I've, I've never really although I've watched E.T. I've never really been a major fan of that one it's It's not really something that calls to me. I've never really been a massive fan of Back to the Future, but with these ones, they are much more towards, you know, kind of the setup of what you'd expect from a Bond film.
3: Yeah, based on that analysis, I think Phil has watched the film. I I wanted him to kind of uh, pretend that he'd watched it and continue the ridiculous nature of, uh, of never seeing Indiana Jones. But yeah, it seems like you've watched it, Phil. Uh, I also like the idea that you you watched ET and Back to the Future and thought oh, that's crap. I'm not watching Indiana Jones.
0: To be fair, it's a bit unfair on Robert Zemeckis, who actually directed Back to the Future. I mean, I wouldn't judge Spielberg's work by um, a film that he didn't actually make.
2: Yeah, so I'll let Spielberg off for that one then. But yes, Back to the Future is I'm not a fan of it. It's just it's. Don't you don't like Back
0: to the Future or E.T. I mean, th- those are two pretty big titles to, to sort of dismiss. E.T.'s amazing. E.T.'s like the most emotional, warm film ever.
2: It just it just leaves me feeling a bit cold, and maybe that's just because I'm... What about, Jaws? Oh, cool. what
0: about Jaws? You must like Jaws. Yeah, Jaws but, is great. Yeah,
2: also, yeah, Jaws is brilliant, yes. Let's not completely badmouth Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, on the whole, has had a very, very good career. Yeah, he's the most
0: successful film director in the world. Yeah, yes. Very, Very quickly, just one thing I wanted to mention on Raiders is um, Steven Soderbergh, who um, directed Ocean's Eleven and Out of Sight and Traffic, he does these experiments in his shed with films, and he did one with Raiders a a few years ago where he stripped out all the sound and put it in black and white. And the film still works when you do that because the direction and the blocking of it is so good. The visual storytelling is so precise and well thought out. You still know exactly what's going on at every point in the film, even without any colour and without anyone saying anything.
3: Okay, so let's move on to our next segment now, a new segment for series number three. We have Phil's bloopers. Some of the the funnier mistakes of the Bond franchise. What have you got for us this week, Phil?
2: Yes, that's right. So much, Martin. So yes, this is a new segment for season three. So this is the Bond bloopers. Now, we're not going to cover all of them in one episode. We're obviously going to look at different films each week. So this week, I thought we'd start with kind of opposite areas of the spectrum. Two of the better films of the franchise, From Russia With Love and Skyfall. Now, starting with From Russia With Love, of course, this has one of the most infamous bloopers of them all, of course, when Karen Bay and Bond are at the gypsy camp, Pedro Ardimarez and Sean Connery, and we see that Keryn Bay's character gets quite badly injured when he's shot in the arm. They obviously didn't pay a huge amount of attention to this scene because if you look very carefully, you can actually see that Keryn Bay is actually having to apply his own blood in this scene. So if you look at very carefully, he actually injures himself technically because he has to apply the blood himself there are also a lot of great interactions we got on, on Twitter. So Robbie Sims of Tchaikovsky fame mentioned that if you look very carefully when Tatiana Romanova first meets Rosa Kleb, you'll see that a stagehand actually has to close the door for her when she's leaving. So if you're very eagle-eyed, you'll spot that um, it's actually a stagehand because Tatiana seems to not be that bothered about closing the door. Going back to Karen Bay as well, when Bond and Tatiana are faced with the kind of horde of rats, they turn away. In one shot, Karen Bay is holding the lectern machine, obviously the machine that um, Spectre is trying to, to steal. And Bond, then in the next scene, is holding the lectern machine. So somehow it manages to pass between them in in the blink of an eye. And there's just some great old fashioned factual errors as well. So when we have Bond and Tatiana again on the Orient Express, that was actually on a route that had been decommissioned two years previously. So technically, the route that they're traveling through doesn't exist. Um, And of course, we do also move to Skyfall, which is kind of, you'd kind of expect this one not to really have any gaffes. Again, it's kind of, it's very much similar to the toner from Russia with Love, it's much more serious. But you'll be delighted to hear that there are still some great gaffs in this film. So Sergei Evershuk got in touch with us on Twitter again. He said, "Have we ever noticed the magic gloves? So this is when Bond is in Shanghai. Obviously, he's there to try and um, infiltrate Patrice and try and stop him from completing his mission. So when Bond is in the car at the very start of the f- of the scene, he uh, removes his glove to take the gun out of the uh, the glove compartment." He then goes throughout the entire skyscraper, so he, he dangles from the uh, the elevator going up the uh, the elevator shaft with one arm. We can see that he has no glove on at this point, and he's also got no glove when he's fighting Patrice in those glorious scenes in the Shai- Shanghai backlit um, lighting effects. But magically, when he's actually grabbing hold of Patrice at the climactic scene where Patrice falls to his death, the glove has actually reappeared from kind of thin air. So it's one of those magic tricks that wasn't meant to be in there. Also, when Silver is interrogating Bond, and obviously there's that quite uncomfortable scene where he's starting to kind of undo his shirt... If you're very eagle-eyed, you'll notice that Bond's scar moves from the left to the right of his chest between takes. So that's uh, another slightly unusual gaffe that arises in the film. But again, for two films that are quite highly regarded in the franchise, there are plenty of bloopers that happen if you're eagle-eyed. So if there are others that you, you wanted to mention, then please get in touch with the show.
3: Okay, thanks a lot, uh, Phil. I always find, of course, From Russia With Love is my favourite Bond film, so I find that uh, those mistakes uh, just add to the charm of the film, the, uh, when he's applying the <laughs> fake uh, blood. Um, and yeah, Skyfall, interesting that they've got those, particularly with all the continuity people that they have working on the film, uh, you'd think that they would uh, address those ones. but So yeah, most of the time they are quite funny and charming. Uh, maybe it gets a little bit anal, doesn't it, when, when people are saying, actually, that train service doesn't run anymore.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you really delve into it, there are a lot... I mean, there are some amazing facts that you can find. I mean, things like the uh, one that I didn't mention was Skyfall, the angle of the motorcycle when it... In the pre-title sequence, when Bond lands on the train, the angle of the motorcycle is actually incorrect. So between the camera shots, apparently, it it should bounce and it doesn't. So this is how... Adam, I can see that you're losing the will to live, so we'll probably move on to the next segment. But uh, but no, thank you to everybody that's been getting in touch with us with your favourite bloopers. Please do keep them coming in.
0: I mean, I mean, the thing about the motorbike angle is it's a fun stunt in a film, isn't it? I mean, that that yeah, when people say, oh, that wouldn't happen in real life. No, it wouldn't. No, no, it's a film. It's an adventure film. Of course it wouldn't.
3: So our next segment is Delve Deeply, where we're going to delve deeply into the United States of America. So this country, of course, features in the Bond franchise quite frequently. So it's going to be a two-parter, actually. This is going to be part one, and we'll have part two a little later in the series. So I thought we could start with Goldfinger. And one of the most interesting locations, of course, is Fort Knox, located in Kentucky, but unfortunately, owing to the, I think the the U.S. Bullion Depository is a military base. It's very much off limits for tourists. Even if you wanted to launch your own Goldfinger-style attack on the place, there are far more levels of security in real life than what's depicted in the film. So some drive-by photography is about as good as it's going to get. But if you keep driving a short distance, you can visit the General George Patton Museum of Leadership, which is next door, and also the Fort Knox Water Park. And uh, speaking of water, another Goldfinger location Is the Fontainebleau Hotel at Miami Beach, where Connery's Bond meets check Linda's lighter and gets up close and personal with goldfinger well jill masterson to be precise but uh, the hotel is in the heart of the so-called millionaire's row and has undergone billions of dollars worth of renovation but it still retains its distinctive shape first imagined by architect maurice lapidus it's currently just over 500 us dollars a night to stay there and like all of these bond hotels it is five-star luxury that you'll be enjoying Interestingly, Sean Connery and Gert Frobe were busy with other films, so only Chet Linda actually went to shoot on location at the hotel. And indeed, this explains the rather dodgy back projection you can see in those scenes. And we've spoken already in this week's episode about Live and Let Die. New Orleans features quite prominently at the beginning. If you visit the French Quarter, the corner of Dumaine and Chartres streets, is where Agent Hamilton and later Strutter both meet an untimely demise. The jazz funerals are still quite a regular occurrence, apparently, but I assume it's quite safe to stand and watch and pay your respects. Just be wary if a stranger comes to stand next to you. And also in the same film, we get New York, the occult voodoo shop, which is on 33 East 65th Street now seems to be quite a swanky beauty salon based on my street view search on Google. And also the Harlem fillet of soul that Leiter and Bond pay a visit to. In reality, they actually filmed that one on the corner of Second Avenue and 94th Street. So those are just a few of the locations in the United States, but we'll come back in a couple of episodes time. Okay, so next up we have the questions from you, our listeners. What do we have this time, Phil?
2: Yeah, so once again, we've been having some great interactions on our social media channels. So thank you to everybody that's been getting involved. So we had a great question from Simon. This got us kind of thinking, actually. Um, Adam, I think you had to actually do some research into this one. But who's the connection for these Bond villain actors? So Benicio Del Toro, Christopher Walken, Jonathan Price and Sebastian Foucan. I had to be honest, I was completely stumped by this one. I was trying to think for pretty much the best part of a week of who that could be. But Adam, have you managed to to uncover the uh, the answer?
0: Uh, yeah, I think I have, yeah. I mean, Sebastian Foucan, the free runner from uh, Casino Royale, was uh, was the tricky one here. Because without him, I thought, well, it's Robert De Niro, uh, who's in uh, The Deer Hunter, of course, with Walker, and He's in Ronin with Jonathan Price. And then a quick Google uh, check that he was in The Fan with Benicio Del Toro. But he has no links at all to Sebastian Foucan And it turned out the actual link is not films, but Madonna music videos. I sort of researched through Camden that he had appeared in one. And of course, Jonathan Price must have appeared in one that got released after Evita, which they co-star in. Uh, And then it turns out a very young Benicio del Toro is a background extra in an 80s Madonna video. And indeed, in the early 90s, Christopher Walken, who's no stranger to a music video, because of course he did Weapon of Choice famously for Fatboy Slim, he also crops up in a Madonna music video. So I think it's that... If it isn't that, I don't know what it is, but I think it's Madonna music videos. Sadly, none of which were dying of a day.
2: Obviously, Simon, if, if that was incorrect, do you let us know. But I think that's that's a pretty good spot. Uh, just to finish off with Q Branch this week as well. So we also had a great question from Carrot. The question he had for us guys was, she couldn't recall if we actually liked Madeline Inspector or not but do we think that the character will actually have more to do in No Time to Die do you think that you know the character is taking more of a leading role in this film perhaps and and obviously is is kind of running with what she did before in Spectre
3: it seems like from the trailers she plays quite an integral part doesn't she in the uh, the whole plot and some talk about daughters or clones of people maybe edging a bit towards uh, die another day for my tastes but uh, of course we can't really um, it's only speculation at this point but uh, yeah I'd, I'd like to see more of her character and it certainly seems like we're going to get there doesn't it
0: yeah well as I remember we did really like her inspected not we certainly I do and I think there are very interesting aspects um, to that character's very quiet strength and, and resolve aren't they the fact that you know they, they delve into the fact that she's a very different kind of bomb woman because she's kind of come from a place of I guess, evil, if you want to very roughly turn that way, certainly from the side of the villains, that has tried very deliberately to distance herself from that. And, you know, they sort of paid lip service in the film to that, oh, maybe she was the only one who could understand him. Uh, So I don't know quite how prominent she's going to be. She certainly looks like she's in a lot of it. But I'm certainly very pleased that we'll see a lot more of her because I think she is a very strong character and, and sort of, you know, perhaps came into Spectre a little bit too late in the plot to really sing you know um, as much as she could have done so hopefully we'll get a bit more development this time around
2: okay thanks guys so that was our Q branch for this week so uh, thank you to everybody that contributed and of course you can get in touch with the show at any time on our social media channels with your questions suggestions and theories
3: Thanks a lot, Phil. So that brings us nicely to the final segment of the show, which is the quiz.
1: No, 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 no stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong!
3: If you've been listening to our previous series, you'll know that uh, Adam dominated the, uh, the quiz proceedings, quite comprehensively winning the Cubby Cup. So to kick off the quizzing for series three, we've got the Sinjin Test. James St. Smythe in A View to a Kill. So that was a rather stupid middle name, but this quiz is going to test your knowledge of real life middle names of some of the Bond actors. So I'll give you a middle name and all you have to do is tell me whose middle name it is. But let's go with, uh, with you first, Phil. So uh, your one is Romolo.
2: I'm gonna say Albert Broccoli, cause I'm struggling.
3: That is the correct answer, yes, Phil, Albert, R, the R being Romolo, so you've got your first one correct. Adam, over to you. You've got Greg.
2: Greg? I was going to say, that's a bit of a come down. We're going from Romolo to Greg.
0: Oh, oh, no, no, of course, no, no, it's, along it's the same. it's, uh, lines. it's Michael, um, yeah, it's Michael Wilson, it's the G in Michael G. Wilson, isn't it?
3: It is indeed, well done, Adam, so it's 1-1. One, one. Phil, George. And I think we can safely say it's not George Lazenby. He wasn't called George. No. George.
2: <laughs> I'm gonna say Robert Shaw, but I think it's wrong.
3: That is uh, incorrect, Phil. It was actually Sir Roger Moore. Sir Roger George Moore. Over to you, Adam. You've got Leonard.
0: Leonard. Okay. I, I think from well, I think from the names you've given, let's assume you've gone for another Bond actor, and let's say that it's Timothy Dalton.
3: It is Timothy Dalton. Well done, Adam. Back to you, Phil. So uh, question number three, we have uh, female actors now for both of your answers. So, Phil, you have Rashida.
2: I'm going to say Naomi Harris, but I think that could be wrong. It was
3: Lashana Lynch, Phil. You were uh... close. And Adam, you have Olivia.
0: Olivia. Uh, let's say that that is, let's, let's assume that because that's a Shakespearean name, that it's Judy Dench's middle name.
3: And you would assume correctly, Adam. Okay, so question number four, Phil, uh, to stay in the game, you have Archibald.
2: See, I'm just gonna say, just because I, I love this actor, and I love him as the character he plays I'm just gonna say Desmond Llewellyn. I don't even care if it's wrong. Well,
3: it's good that you don't care, Phil, because you got the wrong answer there. Uh, you, you've, also, you've already said the answer, actually. Robert Shaw, uh, his middle name was Archibald. So uh, well done, Adam, you've won today's quiz. So Adam continues his good streak on the way to uh, retaining the Cubby Cup. But uh, thanks a lot, everyone, for listening to today's episode. We'll be back again next week with episode number two of series number three. But uh, in the meantime, do check out our social media pages. Um, Give us a like and follow. And of course, any of your questions and comments that you want to send to us as well. But uh, that's it for this time. I was Martin. I
2: was Adam. And I was
1: Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good
0: night. Christopher Lee, because he's descended from Italian royalty, so he's got a really... It's like Cardellini or something, if Hmm. I remember rightly. Let's see if I can... Yeah, Christopher Frank Carandini Lee. So if you would have brought that one up, I might have got it. But uh, yeah, yeah, beyond that, just uh, educated guesses.
2: Who knows this? This is ridiculous. Me, I
3: know this. Not you, Phil, obviously.
2: No, of all all the things to store in your brain, Bond actors' middle names is not one of them.
3: Our engine sizes are much more valuable, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I think so.